So Ephesians chapter 6, at the 10th verse, as we give our attention to the words of eternal life. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. And that's as far as we'll read this morning in God's holy word. Beloved, the Christian life does not merely have battles. The Christian life is a battle. Is that too dramatic? Is that just exaggeration for the sake of preaching? Is it a bit too negative? Too alarmist? No, it's none of the above. It is just what God's word teaches us here in Ephesians 6. You know, in previous generations, you would have heard the people of God still living in this world, much more commonly referred to as the church militant. I don't know if you've heard that language. We realize in a world of ISIS or Hamas, we shy away from that term militant and what most people think of when they hear it, and the potential misunderstanding that it would cause. But the reality of that name for the church in the world remains true. As the church, of course, we always remember 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. But there is a reality to the Christian life that we must see that God is teaching us here in the last part of the letter to the Ephesians. R.B. Kuyper, in his excellent book on the church called The Glorious Body of Christ, says, It is more than time that the church be reminded that militancy is of its essence. When a church ceases to be militant, it also ceases to be a church of Jesus Christ. The church on earth is glorious, not in spite of its militancy, but precisely because of it. Of course, the nature of that militancy, boys and girls, that's a word that's related to military, to armies and to fighting. The nature of that militancy needs to be defined. The kind of battle 
envisioned needs to be pointed out, and the nature of the warfare needs to be understood. And that's what we have for us here in Ephesians 6. All those things. But the main point needs to be emphasized and believed. The Christian life is not the way of ease and peace, but of struggle and conflict. It is the way of the cross. In verse 12, in the New International Version, Paul says, for our struggle. Our struggle. The word there literally is the word to wrestle. And Paul no doubt uses that brand of battle, wrestling, to emphasize how close and how personal this struggle is. It's hand-to-hand, or better yet, heart-to-heart. Combat. And how intense and exhausting it is. If you have ever wrestled, really wrestled, jujitsu counts. But if you've really wrestled, you know that you can train and condition and be in top shape, and within a minute, you are almost completely exhausted. It is so draining, so taxing, so demanding, and so very appropriately used here. Because you know, you know, don't you, how depleting spiritual battle is. How much worship and prayer and serving and ministering to others demands. To say nothing of fighting temptation and anxiety and discouragement. Don't forget verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's what we need. Strength from above in this struggle. Our struggle. It's important, I think, just to note quickly, Paul says, for our struggle. He includes all Christians, including himself in this. No one is exempt. But there's also the sense of something that we do together. All of the commands and pronouns in this section of Ephesians are in the plural. Our struggle. You all put on the armor. It's all plural. You are not meant to fight this fight alone. And so watch out for that. Watch out for cutting yourself off unnecessarily, inappropriately from the people of God. Because this is our struggle. And we need each other. We really do. But here's the point. Again, the Christian life is a life of ongoing, unrelenting, nonstop spiritual warfare. I have a relative in the ministry, uh, in the ministry, I have a relative in the military. 
who just got back from a fairly long tour overseas, and now he gets something like six months off. You don't get that in the Christian life. You don't. Spiritual warfare is what we are involved in every day of our lives, every day of your life and mine this past week. Everything we did or didn't do, everything we faced, everything you experienced, everything you enjoyed, everything you suffered, everything is part of this battle. And not the least of all, it is a battle that is going on right now as I preach and as you hear the word of God. I can't see it, probably. Sometimes I get a hint of it. But it's going on right now in every heart. There is a tremendous conflict happening in this very moment and in your lives that the news media will never cover, that the history books will never mention, and yet it is part of the greatest war ever waged on the face of the earth. In 1891, Charles Spurgeon addressed the pastor's conference, which would, unbeknownst to anyone at that time, be the last time he ever spoke at that pastor's conference. And the theme under which he spoke or about which he spoke was the greatest fight in the world. Last time he spoke at that conference. And under that title, the greatest fight in the world, he spoke about our armory, our army, and our strength. No doubt he was sick of Ephesians 6. The Christian life is a life of ongoing, unrelenting, nonstop spiritual warfare. If you don't see that, if you don't believe that, if you don't acknowledge that, it says a lot about how you are doing in that warfare. You're not doing well. After everything that Paul has written to these Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, and after all that God has said to us here in the 21st century through Paul in this letter that we've gone through over these many months, this letter ends with a spiritual call to arms. A call to live out all that we have learned about the Christian life and living that out in the church, in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, wherever we are, to live it out with the mindset of battle. We have to see that this is the climax, this is the culmination of this passage practically. It's a call to arms. And it is really not just imagery or metaphor. It is in a way but I think that may be unhelpful. It is not just imagery or metaphor. This is a real battle with 
real exertion, with real suffering and real wounds and real outcomes, real victors and real defeated enemies. This is all very real. And it is literally vital. It has to do with life and death. That's what the word vital means, life. This is vital. And not just physical life and death, but more importantly, spiritual and eternal life and death. You know, in, in what is probably the most classic book on warfare outside of the Bible is a book called The Art of War. It's written by a Chinese general, Sun Tzu. It was written in the 5th century B.C. It's still read in military colleges today. Sun Tzu said, The art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry which can on no account be neglected. Now, he was talking about the state. We're not pacifists. The state bears the sword. But how much more vitally is the battle for your soul. The ultimate holy war, as Bunyan wrote in his book, the, the battle over man's soul. So just this morning, as we come toward the end of Ephesians 6, and just looking this morning at Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, I know this is a huge topic. It touches on so many questions that people may have. The nature of God when God says, when he's called uh, a man of war in the Old Testament. The whole question of Old Testament warfare. Pacifism, self-defense, so-called holy wars today. All these questions, I know. We can't cover, let alone touch, on many of those subjects and I don't want us to lose sight of the points that Paul explicitly makes here. This is where we are, Ephesians 6. So we're going to deal with what's here. A spiritual call to arms. And three things we see in these verses. Our adversary, our armor, and our assurance. Our adversary, our armor, and our assurance. And it really answers three questions, three important questions. Who is our enemy? Who are we? And who is Jesus Christ? But first, our adversary. Again, in that book by Sun Tzu, The Art of War, one of the most famous quotations or well-known quotations out of that book relates to this issue of, of the enemy. He says, it is said that if you know your enemies and know yourself, you will not be imperiled in a hundred battles. If you do not know your enemies, but do know yourself, 
you will win one and lose one. If you do not know your enemies, nor yourself, you will be imperiled in every battle. Well, I think we could say something reading that, like the Apostle Paul said in Acts 17, even as one of your own military strategists have said. Remember when Paul says, even one of your poets says this. This is so obvious. It's a point of general revelation. Well, so is this. You have to know your enemy. You have to know your enemy or you're finished before you ever start. We need to know our enemy so that we will be motivated to take this call to arms seriously. And so that we will be wise in how we wage this warfare. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Every verse in that section has something to teach us about our adversary. Verse 11, he is called the devil. That word literally means the slanderer. He is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. And notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't explain or defend the existence of the devil. He simply assumes it and speaks about the existence of a real and personal being who is our enemy called the devil. The pollster George Barna said that the notion that Satan or the devil is a real being who can influence people's lives is regarded as hogwash by most Americans. Only one quarter, 27%, strongly believe that Satan is real, while the majority argues that he is merely a symbol of evil. But C.S. Lewis surely had it right when he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Do you acknowledge the great adversary of the Lord and his anointed Jesus? The devil. Is he your adversary as well? I need to ask that. I need to ask that because the assumption here in Ephesians 6 is that those to whom Paul is writing are believers. They have been born again, Ephesians 2.5. They have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. They are reconciled to God and united to Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Everyone is involved 
in a great spiritual battle, but the question is, which side are you on? Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, he speaks of people who need to come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Ephesians 2 begins, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's the devil. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What side are you on? Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Which side are you on? Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Two great lines of humanity and the reality of enmity, of battle, of warfare between the two. Which side are you on? Do you love the Lord Jesus? Are you trusting in him? Has your own proud, self-reliant, selfish heart been subdued to and by King Jesus? It is only those who are allies with Christ that are enemies of the devil and the devil of them. He is that fallen angel who now leads a host of other fallen angels or demons along with those outside of Christ in opposition to God and Christ and the church. What side are you on? We have to begin there and not make an assumption. Beloved, the call to arms is first a call to Christ, a call to come to him in faith, in confession, in repentance, and to be taken from being allied with the devil to being part of the people of God and the kingdom of the Son he loves. Don't go, don't go one step further until that's decided. But even as those who know Christ and are saved by Christ, we have this adversary. He is the slanderer, the devil. He is crafty. Genesis 3 says he's subtle. The King James here says uh, the wiles of the devil it's the word for methods, his crafty methods, one writer says, his cunning arts, his trickery. He's tricky. You need to know that about your enemy. One Puritan said, look at what he did when even as a young serpent, he beguiled Adam and Eve. Our Kent Hughes said, I'm no genius at mathematics, but even with my limited capabilities, I could be terrific at math if I worked on it for a hundred years, maybe. If I labored at it for a thousand years and read all the learned theories, I would be a Newton or an Einstein. 
Or what if I had 10,000 years? Given that time, any of us could be the world's greatest philosopher, mathematician, theologian, or linguist. Satan has had multiple millennia to study and master the human disciplines. And when it comes to human subversion, he is the ultimate manipulator. Don't underestimate our enemy. He often uses even the best camouflage, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, Paul speaks of Satan's schemes, his plans, that we should not be unaware or ignorant of his schemes. Pick up a book like Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices where he opens up that passage in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul helps us to know who our enemy is in verse 12, where he, he speaks by way of the negative, not against flesh and blood. That the enmity, the enemy, is not really other people. That's what it means, flesh and blood, here. It can mean other things sometimes. Galatians 1, 6 Paul says, I did not consult with flesh and blood. He didn't speak to other people. So that's what it means here. People, of course, are involved in this battle, but they are not the ultimate enemy. This is spiritual battle, and our adversary here, primarily, Paul says, is the devil. That's so helpful to keep in mind as we live our Christian lives. Your greatest enemy in your Christian life is not your husband or wife, if you're feeling that this morning. It is not your children, or your boss, or your neighbor, or your government. It's so helpful to remember that the real battle is not your circumstances themselves. It is not just the external physical things that are happening to us. It is not merely our relationships with others. That is the battleground, but not the real enemy. The real battle is spiritual, and so we can be focusing on the wrong thing. And if we are, we will never be standing firm. We need to remember in the church as well, certainly in the church, that other Christians are not the enemy. We need to battle against battling other Christians. Hasn't Paul already said in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? And the world too much sees Christians battling Christians. There are some fights that we need to have, even in the church, if it comes to that. Doctrinal battles. Moral, ethical battles. There's too much fighting going on. 
that is not in keeping with the Bible, where Paul says, do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. We need to keep that in mind. Our enemy is the devil. If we don't know who the real enemy is, we will never fight the battle properly, well, or successfully. And we will not interact with flesh and blood, other people, biblically. Not flesh and blood. That should really increase our seriousness about this battle, not lessen it. This is spiritual warfare. Paul goes on to speak about rulers and authorities and powers and forces in heavenly places. Here that just means spiritual. It's not a definitive classification of demonology for us to work out. It emphasizes the power, the variety, the comprehensiveness of our spiritual enemy. In verse 13, repeated from verse 12, the word evil. Evil. That which is completely against God, it is darkness as opposed to light. Beloved, our adversary is a spiritual, powerful, relentless, cunning, malevolent, evil enemy. Peter says, you know, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Years ago, I watched a movie called Ghosts in the Darkness about man-eating lions in Africa 100 years ago. I wouldn't watch it again, I don't think. It's too frightening. that's, That's just a little glimpse of our real adversary. The Puritans, it is said, knew the devil better than their best friends. Beloved, said Thomas Brooks, Satan being fallen from light to darkness from felicity to misery, from heaven to hell, from an angel to a devil, is so full of malice and envy that he will leave no means unattempted whereby he may make all others eternally miserable with himself. Paul says a lot here, doesn't he, about our adversary, and we should know it and believe it. Charles Hodge said, if Satan and satanic influence are fables or figures, then all the rest of the representations concerning this spiritual conflict is empty metaphor. But if Satan is really the prince of the powers of darkness, ruler and God of this world, if he is the author of physical and moral evil, the great enemy of God and of Christ and of his people, full of cunning and malice, if he is constantly seeking whom he may destroy, seducing people into sin, blinding their minds, and suggesting evil and skeptical thoughts, if all this is true, then to ignore it or deny it is to rush blindfolded into destruction. Know your enemy, our adversary. But Paul spoke about the devil, not to, not to glorify the devil, but in order for us to be motivated to turn to God and to his armor. That's second, our adversary, but his armor. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil is such a formidable spiritual enemy that no ordinary protection, no mere human preparation could ever suffice. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. The word put on there, it's a bit hidden in the English, is the word clothe yourselves. 
Clothe yourselves with the armor of God. And clothe is a great gospel word, isn't it? We've, we've come across it so many times. What you are clothed with. You know, are you concerned about the things that you wear? Are you concerned about clothes? Most of us need to hear again Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, pointing out that pagans and unbelievers crave and clamor and eagerly obsess over clothes. What you will wear. Physical clothes, things that pass away. But the Christian should be interested in clothing, spiritual clothing, gospel clothing. The wedding garment of Matthew twenty-two eleven. Nobody is allowed into heaven, the wedding feast of the Lamb, without it. The covering of the righteousness of Christ through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.12, as God's chosen and holy, dearly loved people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But here is another clothe yourself gospel call. Clothe yourself with the armor of God. And just like it is Finally, be strong in the Lord. The important thing about this armor is it is the armor of God. The armor of God. It is not of ourselves. It is the resources, the protection, the armor of God. It is of his making and of his providing. There's a renewed interest in stoicism that's even creeping into the church from the culture. Uh, the Stoics, no need to get into it too much, but they just tried to, to take total control of themselves and their lives so that they were in, they talked about imperturbability. Nothing, bugged them, nothing bothered them. They rose above life and their situations, some kind of superhuman self-control strength. And there's an appeal to that, obviously, that you're not just weak and crushed by, by life. But the Stoics, like Seneca, said life is a battle. It's a catchy Latin phrase for it. But they looked in themselves and to themselves and their own self-sufficiency and inner strength to fight that battle. But friend, listen, biblical Christians are not so proud or so foolish. The armor of God. And most translations say something like the whole armor. A French version says toutes les armes. Or the Portuguese even I looked up. De toda a armadura. The whole armor, the complete armor, the full armor. Because the Greek word is the word that we get our English word panoply from. And pan is the prefix for all. This is a panoply is a complete or impressive collection of things. And that's what this armor is. The whole armor of God. It is of God. It is divine in origin. In wisdom ineffectiveness, and insufficiency. The whole armor. There is no Achilles heel vulnerability in the armor of God. It is the whole armor, the complete armor, the Christian in complete armor, William Gurnall. book is titled. And so think about that. 
It is the armor of God, not of ourselves, and it is the full armor, the whole armor. That implies both the many ways in which we are weak and vulnerable. We don't need just this little piece of armor here or there. And the wonderful, comprehensive provision that God makes for our protection and our ability to fight the good fight of faith. And that's what we'll see in coming weeks, Lord willing. The offensive weapons, the defensive weapons, covering every part of our lives, sufficient for every tactic and battleground you may face. It's the armor of God. Do you remember what uh, happened with David in 1 Samuel 21? The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but one. And David said, There's none like it. Give it to me. I love that line. There's none like it. Give it to me. Beloved, Paul here is telling you about the armor of God for your life and the battles that you fight. You know what you should say? Much more than David said about, about some giant sword, you should say in your heart, there's none like it. Give it to me. Give me this armor of God as I fight the fight, the good fight of faith. There's none like it, because unlike Goliath's sword, this armor is not of men, but of God. Several writers comment on armor of men's making that has appeared in history so that we would be warned against trusting an armor that is not the armor of God, so that we won't rely on what we may think is sufficient or effective or reliable. Certainly, we don't, we don't subscribe to conversion or discipleship at the point of a sword, the armor of men physically. But neither should we depend on the armor of human wisdom, the armor of human merit. I've done this good thing. Or not done this bad thing. The armor of ritualism. The armor of mysticism, the armor of veneration of angels or saints or relics. And several pointed this out that I find interesting and increasingly perhaps relevant. The armor of seclusion from the world. This is how we'll fight the battle. We'll just get away from it. And we'll just do our thing on our own, away from the world. A bunker mentality. That's the armor of men. It's not the armor of God. If you look ahead in Ephesians 6, you'll see armor like faith and righteousness and peace. And what are these but gospel blessings? Gospel blessings. That's how we have them. Don't forget that. An Associated Press report in 2007, way back in 2007, cited Pentagon officials the average U.S. soldier costs about $17,500 to equip. What a blessing to have purchased for us by the blood of Christ, the armor of God. That's how valuable it is. It was purchased with the blood of Christ. And with strength in the Lord, in verse 10, the armor of God, 
we should see third, our assurance. Our assurance. Even though our adversary is the devil himself, Christians have great assurance in Christ in this battle. Because the battle in one sense, in a great sense, has already been won. Colossians 2.15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Ultimately, in covenant theology, the battle takes place by champion. Just like David and Goliath, not all the soldiers of the army of the Philistines or the armies of Israel had to fight. They fought by champion. And our champion is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came to this world and took on our nature and fought on our behalf and came to destroy the works of the devil. And where Adam fell, Jesus stood. He's the captain of our salvation. He's won the victory. He faced all that the powers of darkness could hurl at him. And he stood. And he faced the wrath of God and was crucified, dead and buried. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead victorious over sin and death and hell for us and for our salvation. The end is certain, Matthew 25, 41. Then Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I've met a few people over the years who dabble with Satanism. I just say to them, what, are you crazy? He is a defeated foe. You need to read the Bible and see what the the condemnation of the devil is already. The end is certain. The victory has been won. And yet until heaven, the church, which is the church triumphant, we still wrestle. It's part of the already not yet structure of the plan of God. And so verse 11, there's a call to stand, put on the full armor of God so that in order that verse 13, You can stand, literally, that you can be strengthened to stand, that you have the strength to stand. That's the assurance we have. And you might think, what, just to stand? What about about running? And what what about rising up in the wings of eagles? And all those are other pictures that are in the Bible. But here in 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 this context of warfare, here's the great assurance that you could stand. And that you will stand in Christ. That's a big deal, the stand. It's contrasted with what? Fall. Fall. In some contests, it's last man standing. The one who wins is the one who stands. This is standing firm. This is standing victorious. Adam fell, but we can stand in God's strength and with God's armor in Christ by the Spirit. And we are called to stand. We must strive to stand every day, every moment, in every relationship, every circumstance. There is a standing or a stumbling opportunity. We stand or we stumble. Though we never ultimately, finally, or fully fall away. In Christ. The evil day, verse 13, some suggest a particular day of evil in the future, perhaps toward the coming of Christ, but Paul is writing this as an everyday reality. Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. This is the evil day. 
in this world. Stand, and you will stand. J.C. Ryle asked, what does it cost to be a true Christian? He answers his own question. It will cost a man his love of ease. He must take pains and trouble if he means to run a successful race towards heaven. He must daily watch and stand his guard like a soldier on enemy ground. He must take heed to his behavior every hour of the day in every company, in every place, in public as well as in private, among strangers as well as at home. He must be careful over his time, his tongue, his temper, his thoughts, his imaginations, his motives, his conduct in every relation of life. He must be diligent about his prayers, his Bible reading, and his use of Sundays with all their means of grace. This sounds hard. There is nothing we naturally dislike so much as trouble in our religion. We hate trouble. Anything that requires exertion and labor is entirely against the grain of our hearts. But the soul can have no gains without pains. Let us set down that item in our minds. To be a Christian, it will cost a man his love of ease. Stand. Stand. And while that is true, the assurance that we have is that united to Christ, the Christ who stood, we too will stand. In the evil day, not one will be lost. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The militant church is already victorious. We all stumble in many ways, and some battles may be lost in one way or another, but who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the aroma of the knowledge of him. Put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground in his strength with his armor and after you have done everything to stand. After you've done everything, after all is said and done, by God's grace, in Christ's strength, and the Spirit's equipping with the whole armor of God, every believer will, in the end, stand. Thank God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, now and forever. Amen.